0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, Episode 80, The Isaurian Dynasty. Last time, we saw the Empress Irene murder her own son, to ensure she would have to share power with no one. Today we'll look at the last five years of Irene's rule, as her lack of a successor slowly undermines her efforts. But that won't take a whole episode to cover. After Irene is exiled, I will follow listener JS's suggestion and provide a little recap on all that we've covered across the last century. It won't be a dry reminder of the narrative. It will be a weaving together of the most important themes of the past hundred years. So stay tuned. I think the narrative contains all the answers already, but perhaps we should just ask the question, how did Irene get away with murder? It's one thing to blind your own son and escape punishment. It's another to then become the first female ruler of the Roman Empire and be accepted by your Christian population. The first part of this answer must be that a lot of people didn't know what she'd done. The slight confusion in our sources hints at the possibility that Constantine lived on, or was thought to. It's possible that the man in the street had no idea what had gone on up in the palace, and that the rumours which spread were so outrageous that no one knew what to believe. In a world where people fell ill all the time, perhaps people assumed that the emperor was just sick, and not appearing in public. This leads to another factor in the smooth continuity of government. The government continued smoothly. (laughs) There was no change to the dispensation of justice, taxation or trade. So for many people's lives, nothing had really happened. Why question the Empress's story when it can't benefit you? I'm off to the races. If you want to stay here and ask awkward questions, that's your lookout. For those in the know, particularly those working in the palace, there was absolutely no incentive to make noise about what had just taken place. Either you were one of Irene's appointees, in which case, great, I get to keep my job, or you were one of Constantine's supporters, and you really don't want to be noticed right now. It was the men of the army who you'd think would be most likely to complain, but Irene had outmaneuvered them every step of the way. The old generals were dead or retired. The new men were all personally loyal to her. She had handpicked the Tachmata and slaughtered the Khan. No one was in a position to stand up to her. I say no one, but actually, soon after news of the emperor's fate became known, yet another attempt was made to elevate one of the sons of Constantine V. But the now mutilated five brothers were cutting increasingly pathetic figures in the capital, and Irene had them exiled to Athens, where members of her family could keep an eye on them. No one else rose against Irene, but if we're looking for a slightly deeper answer to the question of how she remained on the throne then two things come to mind. One was the nature of palace rule. We saw with Justinian that the Byzantine emperor could conquer foreign lands without changing out of his pyjamas. The capital's control over the empire was strong enough to allow the rest of society to carry on as normal without having to see, with their own eyes, the reality of a woman ruling. Or perhaps a female emperor really wasn't such a scandalous thing by this point in time. Historian Judith Heron points out that the Byzantines had accepted many unusual figures as their Vasilefs. Common men, illiterate soldiers, barbarians, career bureaucrats, usurping generals. All had eventually been accepted as God's temporary choice to fill the office of emperor. Maybe only they possessed the qualities that were needed to guide Romania through its latest crisis before men of a more traditional appearance would once again wear the purple. Now that she was ruling alone, Irene tried to publicly justify her position. She minted coins with her face on both sides and, more famously, used the title Vassilevs, emperor, on some imperial documents. Irene had been styled Vassilissa, empress, in most formal settings up to this point, but of course centuries of tradition saw the empress as implying an emperor, so Irene seems to have experimented with adopting the title of Vassilevs and trying to remove gender from the picture as much as she could. In east and west, news that Constantine was out of the picture and Irene was back in charge provoked a reaction. We'll come to the west later, but in the east, the new caliph, Harun al-Rashid, decided that it was time to attack. Harun, you'll recall, was present on the expedition back in 782, the one where he captured Stavrakios and received a large payment from Irene in exchange for peace. He knew the empress couldn't lead the army, and sensed the chance to extract a large chunk of tribute to fill his coffers. His armies raided in huge numbers in the spring of 798. As was common, the army split into two. A smaller force raided all the way to Ephesus in the Thracision pillaging and taking prisoners from an area that hadn't been attacked for a long time. Meanwhile, the larger force raided hard toward Constantinople. The Opsikion and the Optimates suffered very heavy casualties as they tried to slow their progress. Eventually, the Arabs reached Maligna, the army camp closest to the capital. They ransacked it and captured the imperial stables. They led away one of Irene's carriages... And many of Stavrakios' finest horses. The Empress was forced to renew the expensive peace terms she'd agreed sixteen years earlier. This defeat did remind the men of the army of what they were missing. But the few who reacted foolishly attempted one last time to elevate the sons of Constantine V. Disaffected soldiers from the theme of Hellas worked together with some local Slavs, but they were easily put down by imperial forces. The four remaining brothers, who still possessed their eyesight, now lost it. Theirs had been a tragic tale. Back in the capital, Irene's administration was becoming increasingly toxic. As I previewed last week, the Empress's ruthless acquisition of power was to be her undoing. She refused to remarry or adopt a successor because either man would instantly become a rival for power. This meant that the remaining men in her life, her palace eunuchs and officials, all began to scheme to get their preferred candidate in line to be the next Emperor. The two men in pole position were Stavrakios and Aetius. Both eunuchs, both had male relatives, they were angling to get promoted. Their infighting became bitter and occasionally public. Bribery and corruption were spreading as each tried to tear down the other. When Irene fell ill during the summer of 799, the two men's scheming became rampant, and word got back to her that Stavrakios was considering placing himself on the throne. Once back on her feet, she held a council to hear both sides of the story and publicly rebuked her chief minister for his behaviour. But although she curbed some of his power, she didn't remove him from office. The problem was that Stavrakios was now a counterweight to the growing power of Aetius. To remove one would strengthen the other in a way which might allow them to push her aside. The men she'd trusted for two decades were now the ones most likely to stab her in the back. Realising that her popularity in the capital was crucial to her survival, Irene began a public relations campaign. At a ceremony where she paraded through the streets, she tossed gold coins to the crowd. She then exempted the church from some of its taxes, and recalled the monks who'd objected to Constantine's adulterous marriage. Plato and Theodore were not only allowed to leave Thessalonica, but they were offered the chance to take over the studious monastery which lay within the walls of Constantinople. Theodore, in particular, would become an outspoken activist who Irene's successors would have to deal with. Finally, in the year 800, Irene massively reduced the tax on citizens in the capital and custom duties at its ports. This was an extraordinary move, which would have cost the government a lot of money and was a warning sign to some in the administration that something must be done meanwhile the feud between stavrakios and etius nearly led to civil war etius had secured for himself the command of both the anatolicon and opsikion themes stavrakios understandably afraid of this new power bribed some soldiers in cappadocia to rebel against their commander however The unrest was quickly quelled when news came that Stavrakios had died of a nasty illness, which may have been cancer. His death left his fellow eunuch Aetius seemingly uncontested in the battle to name the next emperor. However, anyone putting money on the name of the next male emperor may have been arguing furiously with their bookie when in early 801, news arrived from Rome that the Pope had beaten Aetius to it. On Christmas Day 800, in St. Peter's Basilica, Charlemagne had knelt as King of the Franks and risen as Emperor of the Romans. We'll explore the origins of this situation in a future episode, but it provoked a confused response over in Constantinople. Initially, the information didn't seem to make sense. Was Charlemagne going to march east and try to install himself in the city? Then it became clear that this designation was not really a physical challenge to Byzantium, and more a question of prestige. So weak was the Roman position in Italy that a Frankish king had been hailed as emperor of the dominions of Rome. Quite what Irene actually thought of this is impossible to say. It was in the interests of the men who succeeded her to point to the fact that the Pope had only taken such a step when there was no male emperor in place in the East. It was also in their interests to promote the story that Charlemagne had proposed marriage to Irene. It certainly seems like this idea was discussed... He was a widower at this point, and Irene, desperate to maintain power by any means, might have considered a political marriage. But presumably, if this had somehow gone ahead, it would have made no practical difference to anyone. Irene wasn't moving to Aachen, and Charlemagne would not have been allowed through the Theodosian land walls. As I said, the situation was more confused than angry in Constantinople at this stage. Irene's court had only just heard the news. There was no context to fully appreciate its implications. But the arrival of Frankish ambassadors in the city may have been a catalyst for the events which would follow. Before Stavrakios' death, many in the administration had worked with Aetius to prevent the former from gaining power. But now that Aetius was essentially the prime minister, many had begun to fear his future tyranny. The eunuch was clearly preparing the ground for his brother Leo to become emperor. He'd appointed Leo as stratigos of both Thrace and Macedonia. And remember that Aetius himself was in charge of the Opsikion. so three of the four themes that surrounded the capital were now under his control. This was very alarming to his rivals, and so in October 802, they made their move. The man who stepped forward to block Aetius and become emperor himself was Nicephorus, the General Logothete. General in this case referring to General Financial Ministry. He had watched in horror as Irene gave away the duties and taxes which formed his bread and butter. Accompanying him was a senior officer of the Tachmata, the Quaestor, the Sacularios, and others. Irene was not in the great palace. She was away at the one she'd built, the Eleutherius. The conspirators waited until about 10pm, and then they approached the guards. They informed them that Irene was unwell, and that she wanted Nicephorus to become emperor, to stop Aetius from seizing the throne in her absence. The guards either believed them or chose to. Irene was soon arrested and escorted back to her imperial apartments. Nicephorus had the decency to look her in the eye and explain himself, but he also demanded that she tell him where her stores of gold were hidden. Once he got what he needed, she was packed off to a small island in the Sea of Marmara. Aetius was dismissed from his post And Nicephorus was taken to the Achia Sophia, where Terasius, following the prevailing wind, crowned him as emperor. A crowd gathered outside to protest, but they were too small to make a difference, and were easily dispersed. Initially, Irene was allowed to stay in an abbey that she'd founded, but after about a month, Nicephorus was suspicious that she might make contact with Aetius, and had her shipped further into exile on the island of Lesbos. She died there eight months later. Irene was about 50, and had been the only female ruler of Byzantium on and off for 22 years. Irene is an extraordinary figure. She's arguably one of the most intelligent emperors we've dealt with on this podcast, You have to admire her abilities, given the unprecedented nature of her rule. I mean, to last two decades on the throne of Byzantium is impressive, no matter how you do it. But as a woman, well, she achieved something unique. But of course, that admiration turns to horror when you consider Constantine's fate. Was Irene capable of such a thing all along? Or did she undergo a Walter White-like transformation the more time she spent in power? Did she deeply regret that horrific decision and end her days a broken person? We can only speculate. What we know is that Irene's exile marks the end of the dynasty founded by Leo III during the siege of 717. Mike Duncan did a wonderful job of breaking down Roman history into periods that made them easier to remember. The Principate, the Dominate, the Crisis of the Third Century, and so on. I think the history of Byzantium can be viewed, so far, as the story of each dynasty. Um, So far, they've fairly neatly covered a century each. The 6th century saw what we loosely call the Justinianic dynasty, beginning with Justin being hailed emperor in 518 and ending with the murder of Maurice by Phocas in 602. Once Phocas was overthrown in 610, the Heraclian dynasty took us all the way to 695, when Justinian II had his nose slit and was sent off to Cherson. That provoked the 22 years of chaos which saw all those emperors like Apsimar the Admiral and Artemius the Secretary before Leo took power during the siege. Leo's dynasty thus ruled from 717 to 802. I could call them the Leonid dynasty, but some historians call the Leo Zeno Anastasius run of emperors which began the history of Byzantium by that name. Sadly, the title you'll find on Wikipedia and in many history books is the Isaurian Dynasty. This term was coined when it was still believed that Leo was originally from Isauria, rather than Syria, as we now believe. I suppose we could call them the Syrian Dynasty, but that feels misleading. And we certainly can't call them the Iconoclasts, given that Irene is hailed as an iconophile. So, Isaurian Dynasty... It is. At least it's a memorable name, even if it's totally inaccurate. Like the Heraclians before them, the Isaurians helped provide stability at a time when the empire desperately needed it. Just as Heraclius' decision to pull back to the Taurus Mountains may have saved Romania from destruction, so too did Leo's defence of Constantinople during the siege. Leo, Constantine V, and Leo IV all led armies well, and thanks to the collapse of the Umayyad dynasty, Byzantium gained the breathing space it needed to stabilise. The beginning of reconquest in Thrace shows us that the Roman state could still expand and offer at least the potential for some future counterattack to the Arab advance. Irene couldn't lead the armies, and so largely she paid for peace and focused on the infrastructure in Thrace. That was a perfectly sensible policy to follow. She had far more to lose than gain by fighting, and it did the empire little harm. In general, she did a fine job as emperor, in part because she promoted men of merit in her bureaucracy who kept things running smoothly. The end of the Isaurian dynasty, though, is not the end of the story of iconoclasm. Oh no. The ban on idol worship will come back and Irene's council will be overturned in the next century. And then in 843, Irene's work will be restored and the conflict ended for good. But before we end the narrative for this century, let's just briefly look back at what we've seen ...across the 8th. I think this is best done by talking about what iconoclasm really represents. I did discuss this back in episode 71, when I introduced this whole era. Iconoclasm is best seen not as just a religious dispute, but as a Roman identity crisis. As you all know, Heraclius left this world with the Roman Empire on its knees... The decades-long war with the Persians and the recurring bouts of plague left the empire poor and undermanned. The shattering arrival of the Arabs robbed the empire of its self-belief. For centuries, the propaganda of the Romans was of an all-conquering people blessed by God. It was increasingly hard to know what to think as the defeats piled up all the way to the middle of the 7th century. You might remember that when I covered the lives of Anastasius, Justin, Justinian, and so on, there were very few coup attempts. But since Heraclius died, they've come with monotonous regularity. That's a symptom of the permanent stain of illegitimacy which the loss of the eastern provinces stamped on the emperors of Rome. The Byzantines were lucky to have the sons and grandsons of Heraclius. They may have kept on losing, but they continued to organize from the center and maintained the idea of Rome in the face of constant doubt. Once Justinian II was overthrown, a collapse began. If the equivalent of Absamar the Admiral and Artemius the Secretary had been squabbling back in 641, then perhaps the Arabs would have conquered Byzantium then and there. Instead, the theme armies had had half a century to bed in, and by 717, when Leo took power, the state was just organised enough to withstand the siege. An important psychological change had taken place during that time, though. Back in 692, I mentioned a battle which took place near the city of Sebastopolis in Anatolia. That was where Justinian the Second gathered the largest army he could muster and led them against Arab forces sent by Abd al-Malik. The Arabs won, and soon after Justinian fell. I don't think those involved in that conflict felt that the battle was particularly significant, but in retrospect, it was. It was the last time that the Romans went off to fight the Arabs, with belief that they could win. I don't mean literally win that battle, I mean believe that a victory over the Arabs might lead to the restoration of the empire. A lot of hope had been invested that the caliphate might collapse during the civil war of the early 680s. Maybe the Arabs would tear one another apart and the Romans could march east and retake their land. Justinian was arrogant enough to believe he could still do it even when the Umayyads emerged from their civil war intact. What followed was two decades of infighting in Byzantium, followed by a siege which nearly wiped them off the map. Even though it was pretty clear in, say, 650 that the Arabs were a devastating threat, it wasn't until 717 that the Romans themselves began to accept that this was the new world order. The caliphate was the giant empire. Byzantium was its poor, beleaguered neighbour. We look back on the siege with hindsight and see it as the high-water mark of Arab attacks, but the Romans didn't see it that way. They were at their lowest ebb. They had barely survived the latest assault, and who was to say when the next one would come? Leo III represents this new generation of Romans. Chastened by the experience of a century of defeat, he began a process which would change the Roman identity. In military terms, this meant no longer thinking about victory in the East. Instead of the proud lion hunting its prey, the Romans would become more like the porcupine. You can attack us, but it will hurt you. Leo's big victory at Acroinon was a perfect example of this. Instead of meeting your enemy head on, you would lure them into a difficult situation and then trap them. Leo paraded through the streets in triumph, but it was a defensive victory, one that could only be gained with the enemy deep in Roman territory, their hands bathed in the blood of civilians. Leo also turned to the intellectuals of the day. They were all Christians, of course, and most of them were clergy. They looked at the Roman situation and equated it to that faced by the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. No more was the Roman Empire the universal kingdom of all Christians destined to convert the world. Now they were a single people beset by enemies and needing to ride out the storms inside the ark that was Constantinople until God restored them to favour. This type of thinking is what created iconoclasm. If God is punishing us for our sins, then we must look inward. When God punished the Israelites, it was because they had fallen into false religious practice. Leo produced a new law code based on Old Testament principles, and he removed icons from the altars of churches to avoid potential idolatry. This change in philosophy was reinforced by Leo's son, Constantine V. You might think that with no prospect of another siege on the horizon, that Constantine might see the world in a less bleak light. But circumstances conspired to convince him that his father... Hadn’t gone far enough. As you know, he was instantly ambushed by his father’s ally Artavazdos and forced to go on the run. Some of the people he’d grown up with turned on him and welcomed his enemies into the capital. It’s possible they also spread foul rumours about him which he could never quite get shot of. Once he’d fought his way back to his throne, the capital was stricken with a devastating bout of bubonic plague. The emperor watched in despair as the city he'd fought so hard to regain became a graveyard. From his perspective, the situation was just as grim as the siege of 717. So he decided to try and purify the Roman people further by banning the worship of icons everywhere. He also began to take the empire's siege mentality to new levels. Instead of just raiding the caliphate during their civil war, Constantine began to depopulate the borderlands. By removing settlers and taking them to Thrace, the emperor was hoping to create a kind of no-man's land around the Taurus Mountains. If that area became as unhospitable as possible, maybe the Arabs would struggle to find provisions for their annual raids. The average Roman out in the fields seems to have accepted most of this change as necessary. The endless raids demanded new military arrangements and adaptable farming practices. People understood that their neighbours or trading partners in Syria just weren't contactable anymore. But when it came to the icons, there was resistance or inertia the noise coming from constantinople was that idolatry must be purged for the good of all but this didn't resonate down on the ground a small number of people passionately agreed with the emperor and another relatively small group passionately disagreed and loved their icons the majority fell somewhere in the middle they were used to the icons they were part of life at church and in many homes they couldn't Dismissed the iconoclast arguments completely, but they just didn't believe that their local church wall hangings were responsible for the sack of Jerusalem. Icons were seen as either a harmless visual aid or a tiny conduit to heaven which provided comfort and support. The clergy went along with the emperor's policies but didn't pursue them once they got home. They wouldn't commission a new fresco, but they weren't going to tear down the old one. This is where iconoclasm becomes more complicated, because even though it's part of a story of change in the Roman psyche, the actual policy was not widely adopted. In fact, modern historians point out that for Constantine's council to actually take root in society, the Byzantine situation needed to stay as bad as possible. In other words, for people to accept that idolatry was the cause of all their miseries, they needed to stay miserable. But they didn't. The civil war in the Caliphate, which we'll cover in a few episodes' time, suddenly gave the people of Anatolia a decade of peace. For an enjoyable period of time, no one's livestock was being stolen, no one's crops were being trampled, and no one's children were being hidden in caves for protection. Constantine V himself was winning battles – He was bringing home Arabs and Bulgars and parading them through the streets. He even made that giant aqueduct start running again. Clearly, God wasn't too mad about the icons. So, ironically, Constantine's fine public record actually undermined his own arguments about idolatry. Once he was gone and the situation remained stable, the Roman people went back to their traditions. For many, images of Jesus and the saints were beautiful and made people's religion come alive before their eyes. It was part of their culture. It was something they'd grown up with. So when Irene announced that she would be reversing Constantine's policies and resuming the veneration of icons, she found plenty of support. However, as we saw recently, Irene did not restore the Roman world to its former state. She actually founded a cult of icons that hadn't existed before. This is why we've had to pick our way through the accounts of Nicephorus and Theophanes. The empire and its church were God-directed. The history books had to reflect this correctness, this orthodoxy, as having always been present. So when Irene's council announced that icons had always been a part of church tradition, those writing the histories made it so. They looked back on Leo and Constantine's behaviour and decided that they had assaulted a beloved institution. This distortion of the past has left quite the puzzle which modern historians have been trying to piece together. And that's where we've reached in 802. One way or another, the issue of icons has become a cause which the Byzantines care about. The underlying issue is about what kind of behavior will restore God's favor to the empire. These discussions and emotions and enactments are unique to the Byzantines. No one outside the empire really cares or understands the issues in the same way. As we will see during the the end-of-the-century episodes, already Christians in East and West are beginning to be alienated from this new Roman way of thinking. Instead of concentrating on being the universal Christian empire, the Byzantine preoccupation with their own purification isolates them from their neighbours. As I previewed back in episode 71, this inward looking concern breaks firmly from the old Roman inclusiveness and begins a process of differentiation. These concerns, though, are irrelevant to the Byzantines. They have to deal with the constant military threat that haunts their nightmares, and that means taking seriously any idea that might restore God's favour. When defeat rocks the empire in the early 800s, men will look back on the golden age of Leo and Constantine, when the empire was victorious, and conclude that the answer must lie with the icons. So ends the 8th century and the Isaurian dynasty. They had seen the Romans through the first phase of their identity crisis – They had prevented the Arabs from seizing Constantinople and sensibly organized the defences to withstand and survive in their new situation. We will now be taking our usual tour of East-West and the provinces to see what's changed and what hasn't. I'll also be answering your questions along the way. If you have any more about the 8th century, then send them in right now, any later, and you will have missed the window.